Welcome to the Hillside Community Church Podcast. Wherever you're at in your faith, we hope this episode encourages you. If you enjoy the listen, let your friends know, and we'll catch you next time. Alright, I need a minute. Whew. Tell you what, the scene of Carl walking into the house with that single balloon wrecks me every time. And uh, it just tears up my heart a little bit. So, good morning. I'm Anthony McCann. I am the children's pastor here at Hillside Community Church. Um, if you're new here or online, we're very grateful you're joining us for, for the first time today. So, a year ago, I stood on this stage. I shared a very personal look into my life. I talked, importance, uh, talked about the importance of having a good foundation in Christ and how that foundation has helped me navigate some very personal tragedies. For those who do not know my story, almost nine years ago, I lost my 13-year-old son, James, uh, to a stroke. And then 18 months ago, I lost my wife of 27 years, Tracy, at the age of 49, to a heart attack. But that's not the extent of the grief journey. I've been surrounded with it. Two years after James passed away, we lost Tracy's father, Jim. And last December, I lost my father-in-law-to-be due to COVID, uh, who's also named Jim. How awesome is that? Uh, These were two great men that I dearly miss. In my seven short years of being a pastor, I have officiated nine funerals. I've participated in three others. The youngest of those was a 19-year-old daughter of a dear friend of mine. I'm walking through and surrounded by grief. But before you feel sad for me, I want you to take a really good look at the man before you. I want you to understand that though I've endured great losses in my life, I'm blessed. I am blessed far, far beyond what I deserve. And the reason I am so overwhelmingly blessed is because I learned that it was okay to grieve. I had people around me that ensured that I wouldn't get stuck in that grief. I'm blessed because I walked through the process of grief and have accountability of an amazing God, fantastic friends and family, as well as others who are navigating the difficult process of grief. The opportunity that presents itself as someone who navigates grief is being able to help others through their suffering. What I've encountered is that there are many grievers who get stuck in the process towards healing, and they never get to the restoration and the life that God has in store for them. Today, we're going to discuss how to keep from getting stuck in your grief. None of us want to be like our friend Carl there in the movie Up, and we're not going to approach it just from a griever's perspective, but also from the responsibility we have as a church body to support and love on those who are grieving. While I've been through trials of grief, I've also supported those who are experiencing it now. I've read tons of books from doctors and psychiatrists. I rely on God's word as the overwhelming authority on the subject. The greatest comfort and examples I will provide today are through Jesus who shows us why we grieve through King David, who gives us an example of how to grieve, and through Job, 
who endured more losses than we could ever imagine, how he was fully restored by God at the end of his grief. Whether you have suffered grief or not, you can be helpful in the process. Before we get much further, I want to be clear. I am still grieving. My grief will look different than yours or somebody else's you know, because as we will discuss, everyone grieves differently. Grief is defined as a keen mental suffering or distress over an affliction or loss, a sharp sorrow, or a painful regret. We saw in the movie clip up that Carl and Ellie experienced some grief moments through their lives. It wasn't just her death that brought about grief. It was a series of sorrows and regret. Finding out they couldn't have a child brought on deep sorrow. Then the regret Carl felt as he realized that they never reached their goal of moving to South America and living in Paradise Falls. Given that example, more of us have probably experienced grief than we may have realized. Josh Rosh wrote in his book, Scarred Hope, there is a universal language that is common to every country, tribe, nation, and tongue. It's the language born out of hurt, suffering, and pain. It is the groan. For many, walking through the journey of grief, it is all they have. Psychiatrist Elizabeth Kubler-Ross developed the grieving process theory. It suggests that we go through five distinct stages of grief after a loss of a loved one. And they are denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and finally acceptance. Of course, now we understand that grief comes from more than just loss of a loved one. It also follows deep sorrow and regret. It is possible many of us have been grieving all along and not realizing that's what we've been feeling. So that begs the question, what do we need to know about grief? Dr. Ross said about this about grief. It is the reality that, it, the reality is that you will grieve forever. You will not get over it. You will not get over the loss of a loved one. You will learn to live with it. You will heal and you will rebuild yourself around the loss you have suffered. You will be whole again, but you will never be the same, nor should you be the same, nor want to. Kenneth, Kenneth Huck shares the three ends of grief. And the first of these are, is grief is normal. It's normal because it's how people respond to a significant personal loss. It's normal to expect people who have lost someone they've loved to be deeply affected. The second of these is grief is natural. It's completely human thing to do. We can't avoid grief. It's built into us. We're created to grieve just as we're created to love. We love when we lose somebody we love, we grieve. The best example we have in this is Jesus. Last year, I was able to officiate a funeral for a friend who lost his daughter. As I was preparing for the funeral, these were the words that God laid on my heart. In John 11:35, it simply states, Jesus wept. Two very simple words, but they give a profound hope that Jesus can understand what we go through at times like this. 
The occasion for the two words was very similar to where we found ourselves today. Jesus was weeping because one of his good friends, a man named Lazarus, had died. As Jesus came to be with the family, he was so overcome with grief, he simply couldn't hold it in any longer. Jesus weeps when we weep. We see here that Jesus loved Lazarus. When Lazarus died, Jesus grieved. Grieving is natural. Lastly, grieving is necessary. Grief provides a healthy way to cope with loss and everything it means to us. Trying to ignore or avoid grief won't work. It will only make the grief last longer and possibly cause more pain. I think the best advice Mr. Hawks shares in his book is give yourself permission to grieve. And I'm going to add to this. As a supporter, we have to give them time to grieve. Ann Hood's description of grief is a little dark, but I think it's on point. Grief is not linear. It's jumbled. It's hours that you're all right, and it's weeks you aren't. It's good days or bad days, or it is the weight of sadness making you look different to others. Covers it pretty well. So grief may not be linear, but it can get better over time. But only if we take time to grieve. There's also a dynamic that can occur when those who have not experienced grief try to speed up that, non, that, that jumbled, nonlinear process of grief. I would caution, if you're one of those individuals, please, please understand, grief doesn't follow a timeline. And the be best reaction for you to have is to be open, gentle, and how you approach their journey. It may be tough to process for most of us who have walked through grief, and for those who you're witnessing walking through grief, when they seem normal and healthy, that they're still forever affected by milestones. Some of those are birthdays, holidays, and anniversaries. They're not stuck in the process of grief. They're trying to remember somebody they love. Part of my grieving process is for James. James, who died eight years ago, it'll be nine years in October. We, uh, we celebrate him by eating hot wings on his birthday. It was his favorite food. It's my favorite food, so it's a plus. We do it every year. And even during COVID, I ordered hot wings, had them brought to the house, and ate them. I choose to celebrate those milestones for Tracy and James throughout the year, not because I'm stuck in my grief, but because I want to make sure that they're remembered. A major complication with grief for the griever and the supporter is no one grieves the same. In James's case, I kind of skipped, uh, skipped the, anger, or the, the, the denial stage. I went straight to anger. Tracy, however, she spent a lot of time in that denial stage. So as we were grieving together, we were grieving so differently, it was t very difficult for us to talk because we were in completely different places in our process and we weren't understanding each other. I recently listened to a TED Talk with uh, David Kessler, the author on grief and grieving. And uh, 
he's covering the five stages of grief. And one of the things he said that really hit me is, there's no right way to do grief. While that's very helpful to someone who's grieving, for those who are trying to support them, it makes life a little difficult. Let me provide an example from King David's life that helped me process through my grief. After David's sin with Bathsheba, he had Uriah killed, and Nathan came to him. In 2 Samuel 12, it states, Then Nathan said to Daniel, You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I appointed you, king of Israel. I saved you from Saul. I gave you his kingdom and his wives. I made you the king of Israel and of Judah. And if that had not been enough, I would have given you more. So why did you ignore the Lord's command? Why did you do what he said is wrong? You killed Uriah the Hittite with sword of the Ammonites. You took his wife to be your wife. And now there will always be people in your family who will die by the sword because you did not respect me. You took the wife of Uriah the Hittite for yourself. Then David says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan answered, the Lord has taken away your sin. You will not die. But what you did is cause the Lord's enemy to lose all respect for him. For this reason, the son who was born to you will die. David prayed to God for the baby. David fasted and went to his house and stayed there. Lying on the ground all night, the elders of David's family came to him and tried to pull him off the ground. But he refused to get up or eat food with them. On the seventh day, the baby died. David's servants were afraid to tell him the baby was dead. They said, look, we tried to talk to David while the baby was still alive. But he refused to listen to us. If we tell him the baby's dead, he may do something awful. And when David saw the servants whispering, he knew the baby was dead. He asked them, is the baby dead? They answered, yes, he is dead. Then David got up from the floor. He washed himself. He put lotions on. He changed his clothes. And then he went into the Lord's house for worship. After that, he went home and asked for something to eat. His servants gave him some food and he ate. David's servants said to him, why are you doing this? When the baby was still alive, you fasted and you cried, and now the baby is dead, and you get up and eat food? David said, while the baby was still alive, I fasted, I cried. I thought, who knows, maybe the Lord will feel sorry for me and let the baby live. But now that the baby is dead, why shall I fast? Can I bring him back to life? I can't bring him back to life. Someday I will go to him, but he cannot come back to me. And then David went comforted Bathsheba, his wife. In King David's case, his friends and advisors were trying to get him to function while his child was sick, and he refused. He had already started his grief process. He started it his way. I experienced this with James. After James had his stroke, he lived for 41 days. I remember just feverishly praying for James. When I became too angry to pray, I called on my friends and said, will you please pray on my behalf? I'm empty. When James died, I still had a grief journey to walk through. But I had the responsibility to support Tracy as well. So our grief looked very different. Personally, I loved that picture of King David cleaning himself off and attending to his wife, Bathsheba. Part of King David's grief process was to help his wife. More than that, King David provides a great example of not getting stuck in his grief. Not only is he walking through his journey, and keep in mind, he has a support system of friends and family and advisors around him. 
He's helping Bathsheba start hers. Let's look at the movie up again. In Carl's case, he's not just grieving. He's stuck. He's stuck in his grief. So how did he get stuck? As I mentioned before, that he and Ellie suffered some other grief moments. And the clear difference in the cases is that they had each other through those other opportunities. After Ellie died, Carl only had himself. And by the looks of things, he got stuck in that depression stage. So this leaves us with two questions today. If we're the griever, how do we keep from getting stuck? And if we're the supporter, what is our role in the grief process? But before we start, let me share an incredible insight from Dr. Paul Tripp. He reminds us that death is not the only way that God, God designed us. It is one of the reasons that grieving is so hard on us. He states in his book, Grief, in times of death, Christians should be sadder than anyone else. We know how sin brought death into the world. We mourn not only for our loved ones we have lost, but also for the fact that death continues to destroy. We live in a place where something that was never meant to be has become a common experience. We know how wonderful life on earth could have been. He continues by stating, yet we should also be the most hopeful of any who mourn. God brings the best things out of the worst. Even in the darkest moments, we're never alone. The death and resurrection of Christ stand as a sure and reliable promise that someday death will die. God doesn't call you to stifle your grief or put on a happy face when you are crushed. He doesn't expect you to hide behind religious cliches or theological platitudes. God approves of your tears. But he welcomes you to look at death through the eyes of Christ. The comfort and hope he provides does not remove your grief but allow you to grieve in a brand new way. And he promises to one day to take you to a place where you will never cry again. Grievers, you're allowed to grieve. Don't let anyone discourage you. I remember that, and remember and keep in mind that even Jesus grieved. Supporters, you're part of the grieving process because it, you must allow time for the grievers to grieve. Your part is to be present, not intrusive, but available. Supporting somebody who's grieving is tough because it's like being an Olympic spotter. You're there just in case, but if you get involved when you're not needed, it could cause a setback. For both grievers and supported, there are traps in the grieving process that can work towards the grieving party to get stuck. Dr. Tripp says the first of these is doubt. When we are hurting, there can be a tendency to doubt the goodness, faithfulness, mercy, and love of God. We need to hold on to the fact that God loves us, and because he loves us, we have hope. When we doubt God, we're giving up that hope. Jason Noble stood up here a couple weeks ago and reminded us that those who are struggling need that hope. As we start to grieve, we cannot give in to doubt especially doubting who God is, because God is our hope. The second trap is a tough one. It's directly related to the grieving process, and that is anger. Being angry when we lose someone is pretty common. Robert Kellerman states, in a Christian approach to grieving, God is our ultimate reality. 
We can't and shouldn't try to escape facing our grief face to face with God. To our candid honesty with, our, honesty with ourselves, we must add honesty with God. We need to lament. We need to move from a destructive anger at God to a constructive complaint to God. This is an important thing to grasp. Though anger is a part of the process of grief, where we direct our anger matters. Kellerman's statement of we need to move from a destructive anger at God to a constructive complaint to God is the most excellent advice I've ever heard. For me, let me share what this looked like in my life. The morning after Tracy died, she died in our home, Pete came to the house. And I remember he asked me how I was doing. And the first thing I shared with him, the first words out of my mouth was, I am so angry with how Tracy died. I'll spare you the details. It's something that Josh and I will never forget because there was always that possibility of her passing away of a heart attack. It's the one thing that kept me up at night as she was going through her, uh, you know, two decades of, of, of uh, illness. And we f when we found her that morning, all my fears were realized. So when my friend Pete comes to the house and asks me how I was doing, I started to cry. I remember looking at him and saying, she went through so much. She endured so much. She deserved to pass in her sleep. Pete, being a good spotter, he had no words for me. He gave me one of those big Italian hugs. You know those hugs that, where there's no room for anger? It's what I needed at that moment. And when I was ready, I discussed my anger with God. I came to realize that my anger was not with God, but with the situation that had happened. I knew that through God, I would have the hope to be healed from the grief that I had just started. The last trap is self-pity. And Dr. Tripp shares this. In your pain, you're tempted to move God out of the center of your life, and life becomes all about you. No one's losses or pain are as great as yours. You descend to a level of self-pity and self-absorption you wouldn't have tolerated before. Despite the way you feel, don't set aside the two great commandments, to love God and to love others. What a cool perspective that if you're starting to hit that trap, when you're starting to get into that role of self-absorption and self-pity, that we have two other commandments that override that, to love God and to love others. Now I've identified the traps in the process. Let's discuss what makes it successful. How do we keep from getting stuck in our grief? The best way to ensure you do not get stuck in your grief is to get into your community. A community with God, with family and friends, and with, with those who walk through grief. Relationships are a key component in healing. And here's the thing. It might be a relationship you didn't expect. I love this movie up because we see in it um, Carl 
at the beginning, they, they play that clip at the beginning of the movie and where he's sitting in front of the TV and then Russell, the little scout boy, knocks on his door. You know, Russell is the person who would help Carl find purpose and start a road to healing. There's a scene at the end of the movie. I, I, I had the opportunity to sit and watch this with my uh, goddaughter, uh, Aria, last night. And uh, there's a scene at the end of the movie where, where Carl's about to move back into the process of grief. You know how we say it's not linear. He's starting to get back into that depression stage. And he sits down and looks through that book again. And that's Ellie's adventure book. There's a page where he never goes past because he thought it was all related to the adventure they were going to have when they moved to South America. And then he notices, notices something in there, and he pulls it open. And it's her adventure with him. And at the end of the book, we see Ellie, what Ellie wrote to him as she was in that hospital bed when she handed the book back for him, back to him. And maybe, and it says, thanks for the adventure. Now go have a new one. You know, it's at that point that Carl knew he had to get up. It's not all about balloons. <laughs> he needed to get up and help Russell. You know, Tracy and I got our own Russell too. It was in the form of, a Bell in the, in form of the Bell family who had experienced the loss of their own. And we were able to walk through our grief journey together. But I'm going to talk more about that in a minute. Let's talk about the relationships you need to have. First and foremost, your relationship with God matters. Not just when you're going through grief, but at all times. But when you're going through grief, God is the best hope for healing. We know that hope starts with Jesus who sacrificed his life for our sins. The same Jesus who grieved so deeply for his friend that he wept. Jesus understands our grief, and when we talk to him and allow him access to us, the healing begins. This can be done through prayers, conversation, journaling. I was angry. I had a lot of angry conversations with God. But I didn't get stuck because I continued to have conversations with God. And as the healing began, the conversations turned into prayer. And then as they kept going, it turned into a reliance on who God was in my life and the healing that he was providing. I will tell you this. The one thing that is a must in healing is keeping Jesus at the head of it. Let him in. Keep the conversation. But most of all, trust that God can and will restore you. Secondly, and this one's a tough one, you have to maintain relationships. I believe this one's harder to those who are in the supporting role. I cannot help to think of Job, you know, and his friends, <laughs> you know, they weren't very supportive. But what I liked is that they were there. For those who want to know what to do for your grieving friends, all I'm going to tell you is be there for them. Job's friends may have not been, uh, been the best example, but I tell you what, and I've been through this twice now, I'd rather have friends be present than the ones that were too scared to say something wrong, that they said nothing at all, or in some cases walked away. 
For the griever, I want to share a part of Beverly and Josh Ross's book, Scarred Hope. It may help how do you react to those friends and family who are trying to help you. Beverly starts by saying, people are going to say stupid stuff, but they're giving, the, giving you the best they've got. Cover them with grace and mercy. Every time I use this phrase, and I use it a lot, I picture myself under Niagara Falls where the noise is too loud for the words to invade my heart. In the offering of grace and mercy, and after a lot of practice, I'm learning to receive it myself. She continues to say that people are afraid of grievers. Many of us are walking out another's nightmare. Our very presence brings pain, fear, and uncertainty. People are afraid to say the wrong thing. So instead of suffering through the humiliation of being wrong, they say nothing. But for us, the grievers, it's important not to make fun at another's best effort. But it is certainly okay to use your voice to teach them a better response. I really like what she says here. Please don't assume people are trying to hurt you. We are better people when we assume good. When we assume others are giving us the best they've got. And the, the advice she gives is here. Use your voice. Just as you should not assume people are not trying to hurt you, you must also not assume they know what you need. They don't know what to say. And they don't know what you need. You know all those notes and texts that come early on inviting you to let them know if you need anything? Make the call. Grieving is not time to be independent. It takes a village to walk through this hard season. Danny Mack says, only you can do your own grief work, but you don't have to do it alone. Thirdly, I would tell you that, and probably one of the coolest things out of this is being ready for new relationships. I'm going to use some very personal examples here. When James died, I worked for the uh, police department uh, in Irving as their uh, IT manager. My supervisor was this really tall, gruff assistant chief, and he was personable enough. Uh, but he kept most of our conversations professional. I remember after James died and coming back to work, he pulled me into his office, and he shared his own grief story with me. It was a completely personal moment that caught me off guard, I'll be honest. It's not often you see a police, uh, police chief cry. And I realized that after he shared that we're connected now through our tragedies, and he reassured me of two things, that things were gonna be okay, and that there will be good days and bad days. But the best thing he told me, he says, I was welcome in his office to share either one Good days or bad days. I was welcome to walk in his office and share either one. It's a friendship that I value for more reasons than I can explain. Another relationship came out of, that came out of this was with our grief marriage counselor. Grief is tough. Like I said, Tracy and I were at two very different stages in our grief process. We realized pretty quickly that we needed some counseling. And grief counseling, in turn, when you've been married for a long time, turns into some marriage counseling too. And uh, I'm going to share a glimpse of, of this through a Facebook post I wrote Easter of 2020. This is about a month and a half after I lost Tracy. And it just talks about our, our marriage counselor 
and why she's important to us. Ten years ago, I was asked to pray for a young mom named Jenny who was fighting for her life. She lost her battle, and though we had never met, she would have a profound impact on my life. Two years later, we lost James. Tracy and I knew we needed counseling, and a dear friend recommended a wonderful person named Beverly. As we started counseling, she shared her own story of loss, the loss of her daughter. And as she was sharing, all the dots connected. This is Jenny's mom. Beverly mentioned that her son had written a book that might be helpful to me in dealing with all that I was dealing with. The book is called Scarred Faith by Josh Ross. In there, he shares the event of Jenny's battle, but more than that, he shared an outlook that changed the way I was processing everything. He shared a conversation that his parents were having as they walked out of the hospital for the last time. This is a quote out of his book. It says, they walked with a limp because the lifelong journey of grief was setting in. My mom looked at my dad and said, remind me, what do we believe? What do we believe? And after a few moments, my dad responded with these words. The tomb is empty. The tomb is empty. The tomb is empty were words I needed to hear to change my perspective. Almost instantly, I was able to see that there was victory in our loss. And while selfishly we want our loved ones to be right here with us, they are living in eternity with Jesus who defeated death. Those words opened my mind and my heart to the possibility that I was focusing on the wrong things. For the past seven years, Tracy and I had celebrated Easter with our new perspective of victory. And today I'm here without James. And now without Tracy. And that tomb is still empty. And my heart is still full. I cannot thank Beverly and Josh enough for sharing their story with so many of us that needed to understand that there's victory every day because the tomb is empty. Happy Easter. As you can see, Beverly and her son Josh have made a great impact on my life. I highly recommend their books, uh, Scarred Faith and Scarred Hope. Lastly, and the coolest relationship that came out of our grief was with our friend, dear friends, the Bell family. Now, if you've been here for a minute, you've met Jimmy Bell. Um, and our story is far, far too long to tell today. And I don't want to be accused as going as long as one of Pete's sermons. So <laughs> we met the Bell family when we were both at Children's Hospital. As uh, fate would have it, uh, our rooms were right next to each other in the corner. We were coming in as the Bell family was getting ready to leave. We had a couple days overlap. And uh, it was the first time I had a face-to-face -face with Jimmy Bell. And uh, it would definitely change my life. Because shortly after meeting them, their son Jason passed away. Tracy and I made a point to go to his funeral, not knowing that eight months later, they would have to do the same for us. The Bells helped us navigate that very difficult road of losing a child. And, even, and with their permission, we actually placed our family burial plots next to theirs. And what blossomed out of that opportunity is a lifelong friendship that I will always cherish. It's cool. Uh, we attended Grief Share together as family, and I'm going to talk more about it in a minute. But it was in Grief Share that we learned to talk about our feelings with each other. You know, and if you met Jimmy, he's not a big feelings person, okay? He's a great guy. 
Um, but it was an important part of our, our walk together because not only did we get to share about our grief and get some of our story started, we realized at that moment that Jimmy had already started sharing his story with others so they could start moving through healing, and he did that through us. Now, Jimmy and I did something else that I don't re- recommend everybody who's going through grief do. Um, we got memorial tattoos for our sons, but not just our sons. We each have a mor- memorial tattoo for each other's. This is James's, and this is Jason Hunter's Bell's. I love it, because now when somebody asks me about the car's tattoo on my forearm, I get to tell them about an amazing young man, Jason Hunter Bell. It's the best part of my new normal. So, just a reminder, tattoos hurt, so. (laughs) Now, not everybody's story is gonna be the same. And it's possible that your new normal may include relationships with people who've walked through grief and want to help you. In our case, we were blessed that God provided the right people we needed at the right times, whether it was a gruff assistant police chief who became a friend, a counselor who understood that delicate process of grief and how it affects all your relationships, or the beautiful Bell family. As I briefly mentioned counseling, it's very possible that counseling may be an important part of your recovery. Counseling is not required for healing, but it is helpful. Through both losses, I had counseling and still check in with my current counselor. It's good to have a spot check, especially when you're a pastor. Um, where counseling helped me the most, though, was while Tracy was still sick. Tracy battled illness for over 20 years. And at some point, I realized that I'd lost empathy for her. And it was a tough realization. I remember when it hit me, I called a, a, a friend of mine, and, and I just detailed out what was going on in my head. He was a counselor, but, you know, of course, being friends, he couldn't counsel me. And so I brought it to his attention, and, and I told him, I, I don't have time to skip counselors. I was like, I need you to help me find somebody the first time up. And so I explained everything I was dealing with, and he recommended a counselor to me, and it's the counselor I still have to this day. And what we discovered when I started my, uh, started my counseling is that I had already started my grieving process for Tracy. You know, that's not fair to her. I was already grieving her like she was gone before she was gone. Kind of like King David did for his son. While it wasn't fair to Tracy, it was how I was dealing with it. Where counseling came in and and, and became a blessing is that I was able to deal with those feelings. And then when I got home to her, I was able to be helpful and kind and loving because that's what she needed from me. And that was important because what we thought was gonna be a three to five year battle actually wound up being just a few short months. I've mentioned uh, grief share for a minute. I cannot, cannot tell you how important small groups like grief share, hope groups, Stephen ministry, how important they are. But I like how Beverly Ross said it. She's a little more eloquent than I am. She says, give yourself 
permission to be with your safe people. Without exception, people who have found a healthy grief group report is the tool that helped them the most. Grief Share, Hope Group, Stephen Ministry, they're tools that are available to us, and they can be the difference maker. Grief Share wound up being a bigger blessing than we thought we could have hoped for. First off, we went as a family, and when I say a family, Tracy had to include everybody when we went anywhere or did anything. That included counseling. <laughs> so when we signed up for Grief Share, her mom, her dad, her sisters, their spouses, my baby sister, were all in that same group with the Bell family and then a slew of other people that were just amazing. And what we've discovered there is that there were other sorrows and other regrets that had never been dealt with that we were putting on top of our grief. And so we were able to start grieving for those as well. Being in a room full of people who are walking through the same pain as you, even though they're doing it at different stages in different ways, is incredibly helpful. It is an amazing blessing. It was to our family and it can be to yours. And while everyone grieves differently, it's really helpful to know that you're not alone in that process. Hopefully by now you can see why God has laid this on my heart. It's not just because I've walked through this journey, it's because I have a heart for those who have not been able to get past the hurt to the point of restoration. The best result of, uh, the best result of walking through all the stages of grief is to get your life back. Or if you would rather, start your new adventure. I guess they took the slide down on me, that's all right. Take a minute to look at Job. Job 42, it says, And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters who had known him before, and all had known him before, and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him. What a great picture of a family being together and supporting one another. The best personal picture I could paint for you is this. When I recently got married to my beautiful wife, Jennifer, here. Tracy's family was there. They came to the wedding. They love and support us. They were part of our process, and, they, and we're still a part of theirs. Family doesn't end with the death of a loved one. Tracy's mom, Sonia, shared with me that I will always be her son-in-law. Now, it's the number two son-in-law. Everybody likes Donald better. I get it. You know, but it's an honor that I cherish. Now, I've left off a valuable resource source that can be helpful, but for the purpose of being stuck, I feel sometimes it becomes the reason that we escape community. There are a ton of books that cover the subject of grief. Some can be extremely helpful as you personally walk through the stages of grief, but I would caution to please let them just be a small part of that process. Use them as a guide. Do not get stuck in that analysis paralysis of trying to conquer grief without a community. As a griever and support, supporter, I often read new resources as they become available. It's helpful for me to see how people walk through their grieving process. One of my favorite books is Through the Eyes of a Lion, Facing Impossible Pain and Finding Incredible Power by Pastor Levi Lusco. So before I pray us out, 
Let me share a small part of this book. It's the lead-in and journal excerpt that Levi wrote after they lost his daughter, Lena. Jenny and I made this decision as we chose how we were going to respond to this terrible nightmare of having our daughter taken from us. Everyone grieves differently. It's a process, not a science. But we decided that we would go through it running towards the roar. And here's the journal ent entry that he wrote. As we grieved, staring at this thing in the face, when unpacking the bag Lena had brought to her grandmother's contained the clothes that she had worn that Thursday before changing into her PJs that she would die in, it was extremely tempting to hide from it or to cling to it, either keeping them as keepsakes, making all our clothes sacred, or not opening at all, refusing to go there. But we chose to hug them, to weep over them, smelling her on them, and then we washed them so that they could be folded and in a drawer for Daisy and then Clover to wear one day. Nothing would be sacred. We didn't want boxes full of mementos waiting to blow us up when we stepped on them in 10 years. Looking at the pictures, watching movies, going through our clothes, we made the choice to bring this thing to our breast, let it sink its teeth into us, and empty its venom. For, for some reason, though, it terrified me. I had to stare this in the eyes with my knees shaking and say, do your worst. Maybe it will kill us, but if we can get through it, we won't have to live in fear. I didn't want anything sneaking up on me. I would go all the way into the depths of this sorrow and drink it down into the dregs. I stayed up to 3 a.m. or later each night for four or five days watching videos, pulling out photos, reliving her five years on this earth to find the best clips and pictures to play at her celebration so that the world would know who she was. It was a horrendously traumatic, and it would have been easier to take a Xanax and stay in bed crying. But I knew it would only delay the inevitable. No shrines, no booby traps. We faced it all, and then we pushed into the future. What a fantastic way to approach the grief process, to face the roar and then push into the future. Please know that our loved ones who have left us only want us to find our next adventure. Please do not allow yourself to get stuck. Start the process, push through, and find the res 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 restoration that God has for you. Now, one of my favorite illustrations that I think applies to this is there's a man on his porch and there's floodwaters coming in. And I know you guys have heard this before. And as he's sitting there, a four by four pulls up and says, floodwaters are not gonna recede. Jump in, I'm here to evacuate you. He tells the man in the four by four, it's all good friend. I'm waiting on God, God's gonna handle this. Short time later, as he's looking out his second story window and the floodwaters are right, right below it, a man pulls up in a boat, looks at him and says, hey, the waters aren't receding. This is only going to get worse. I'm here to evacuate you. The man once again tells him, it's okay, friend. God's going to come save me. I know he will. Short time later, he is standing on the pitch of his roof, water coming above his ankles, and a helicopter flies over and says, I'm here to evacuate you. And once again, he says, don't worry about me. Evacuate the others. God's come to get me.
We know the man drowns. Goes to heaven, stands before God, and said, I waited for you. And God said, I sent a four-by-four four, a boat and a helicopter. What else did you expect me to do? If you're on the pitch of that roof in your grief and you're going to drown, I encourage you to move towards what God is placing in front of you. And if you're a supporter in one of those vehicles, when that person says, it's okay, friend, God's got me, just look at them and say, I know, I believe that's why I'm here. Are you stuck? Do you know someone that is? How can you become a part of the process that moves towards healing? Well, let me share, if you are stuck or at the beginning of the grief process and want the healing to begin, let someone pray for you today. We have great people who are in the corners ready to pray for you. Or reach out to our amazing care team. Let them guide you to a solution that will help you start the process. Let us pray. Father God, we are just overwhelmingly grateful for what you put before us. Lord, we know that you're always there. And Lord, I just pray for those that are in this room that don't know you, that they will find you today. For those that are stuck in a process, whether it be grief or something else, Lord, that they will find healing through you today. And Lord, for those of us that are trying to help our friends, that we will be the spotters we need to be and not allow them to get set back. It is in your holy and precious name we pray today. Amen. Thank you.